Don't say you didn't hear a good sermon today. That was it. So thanks to our leaders and to their leaders, to Allison and Brucie and Carrie. What a wonderful, wonderful sound. We're continuing in this series throughout the fall that we're calling Q&A, Life Asks, Jesus Answers. We're allowing a story from the Old Testament, the, the Hebrew Bible, to open to us a question of life. And then we're looking to the gospel text for some wisdom from Jesus, if not a simple answer, wisdom that might guide us toward an answer. We've spent some time the last several weeks dealing with the exile, anticipation of the people being in exile, and then two weeks the people were in exile. Today we turn to one of those formal narratives in the gospel, uh, in, in the book of Genesis, one of the foundational stories of the Israelite people, um, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we will let them ask the question for us. The oldest story in the Bible is of the dysfunctional family. It would be nice to separate human history into a neat before and after. That is what much of Christian theology have done, has done, of course, but that way that may be mostly a way of just letting ourselves off the hook. We call that episode with Eve and the apple the fall. Kind of ironically, it's been called the fall of man, although it was a woman's fault, of course. <laughs> you remember, the woman was weak and she succumbed to the snake's temptation. She took the first taste of a Granny Smith and it's been downhill ever since. Now, I never thought about it till this sermon that the apple pie was an expressly forbidden dessert entry until Eve took a bite. So a good homemade apple pie may be the only consolation prize for human sinfulness. You know I'm kidding. The Bible doesn't say it was really an apple, but the church has never been that good at actually reading the Bible, so I would appreciate it if you would just humor me this morning and play along. Before the apple pie, all things were perfect. In harmony, life was perfect. Then Eve did us all in, and there has been hardship and toil and the pain of childbirth ever since, and women not getting along with snakes, that too. But at least we've had fresh-baked apple pie. I guess it didn't make up for the pain of childbirth and all of that, but with a scoop of vanilla ice cream, it's got to come pretty close. And here's the point, though. Before I digressed into all my apple pieology this morning, we like to separate our history into a neat before Eve and after. Before Eve, things were perfect. There was no family dysfunction. That could only happen after the fall which we all know, you know, was Eve's fault. But that's the point. What we've done by making such a neat and tidy break before and after is to blame someone else for our sin. 
in the process trying to let ourselves off the hook for every ill in the family, in the church, in the society. And I'm not sure that's the point. I am sure it's not very helpful to us and I have a suspicion that it's just not the way it was. That there never really ever was a before. The narrative of creation is our story, not Eve's story. She is each of us, and Adam too, of course. I see it in my own life. You probably can find the two of them in your life. And ours is just one slice of all of the human story. We are each one the same. And now I have raised two babies to near adulthood, so I have gotten to witness this firsthand. So what I know to be true is that the only before that there is comes before there is any awareness, any awareness of self or the other or the world. And surely God's intent is not for us to live as infants unaware of ourselves and our neighbor and of God. As soon as a baby becomes aware of himself or herself, from that point in life, it's all about me. And it's after from then on. You hear what I'm saying? The brokenness is intrinsic to our reality. As soon as we know anything, it's after. The sinfulness is just part of who we are as soon as we are. We have to start dealing with this. So the dysfunctional family is not a product of the after. In my non-traditional view, it is just literally the oldest story there is. In the beginning, there was dysfunction. Adam, Eve, Cain, killing his brother Abel in the very first story there is. In an article entitled The Family of God, Broken and Beloved, Reverend Barbara Bate calls, calls out one of the idolatries of the modern church, namely its obsession with the traditional family, so-called. And she names this obsession for what it really is, a lie. Bates says a major disconnection exists between the church's image of the good family and the myriad stories of human relationship struggle in the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament. Let me ask you, where is the traditional nuclear family in the Bible? Where? Husband, wife, two kids, one dog, two-car garage living in the suburbs, where? Bates speaks soberly about the biblical presentation of family. The personal and community stories of Yahweh's people depict virtually every form of human mistake and malfeasance against family members. 
rape, incest, lying, stealing, murder, betrayal, solicitation for prostitution. The book of Genesis describes one deeply disturbed family after another. The New Testament offers few graphic stories of household havoc, but it portrays relationship loss and brokenness frequently. In the situations of women and other persons who are defined physically and mentally as marginal. Wow. Her description kind of makes you want to go home and watch an episode of Leave It to Beaver, doesn't it? Truth is, folks, we can cover over reality with a whitewash of idealism, and we can bless it with a proof text from Scripture, one word here and there, one verse here and there, but that will not change the reality. What people need today is not some guilt-ridden call to the idyllic traditional family that has only ever existed as a 1960s black and white television fiction. What people need today is the truth. Family life is hard. In every wedding we do, we said it to Chris and Stephanie just last week, it's the hardest thing there is. Welcome to the real thing. Family life is hard. From the very beginning, it has been fraught with failure. While the biblical witness does not sentimentalize the family, it does offer hope, says Barbara Bate. What is to be learned about families from the biblical witness? There is little worthy of respect and emulation in most of the documented biblical households, yet the God of the Scriptures repeatedly offers an unaccountable grace, taking on and developing as followers the worst sorts of failed family members imaginable. From the beginning, families have failed, but God has not. God is not through with us. If you don't know the story of Jacob and Esau, you are missing one of the archetypal narratives of family friction and sibling rivalry. You ought to go home and read it for yourself. The Cliff Note version is this. There was enmity between these two twin brothers from the womb. Jacob is literally born hanging on to the heel of his elder brother Esau and that struggle for who's first continues for their whole life. He grew to become a kind of homebody. And one day while his older brother, the twin Esau, was out hunting game so the family could eat, Jacob conspired with his mother to deceive the old and blind father, Isaac. Their treachery, mother and son, succeeded in winning for Jacob the birthright that rightfully belonged to the elder, Esau. And Jacob also managed to acquire the father's blessing in the process. But in doing so, in twice deceiving his brother, he had to leave home 
for fear of his life. And that's how they spent most of their lives, separated by sibling rivalry, deception, mistrust, fear. Today's text is the culmination of that tension. After a life of tension, we come to this story, which is an impending confrontation of the two brothers. I read only a portion. Jacob has sent out a party of his men to see where Esau is. He thinks he's in the area. And the party return to Jacob and say, we came to your brother Esau. He is out there, and he is coming to meet you. And 400 men are with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. And Jacob prayed. O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, I am not worthy of the least of all the steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. I love this prayer. God, I'm not worthy, but I'm asking for it anyway. I am not worthy, but please deliver me from the hand of my brother. Deliver me from the hand of Esau, for I am afraid of him. He may come and kill us all. And you've got to know what Jacob is thinking, and rightly so. I'm afraid. So he spent that night, and from he spent that night in prayer. It's the story of Jacob's ladder. All night long, Jacob prayed. And from what he had, He sent a present for his brother Esau. What about you? Think about your own brother. Is there fear and mistrust and suspicion and deception? Do you have a relationship with your sister? What about the co-worker in the office, your next-door neighbor, your spouse? What about your in-laws or your grown children? Or what about your parents? Why so much brokenness in our relationships, so much dysfunction? Why? And what can we do about the brokenness if dysfunction is as American as baseball and hot dogs and apple pie?
And then Luke gives us a parable. It's known as the parable of the persistent widow, though in a moment I'm going to rename it. I wish I had that kind of power. Then Jesus told them a parable about their need to pray always and not to lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor had respect for people. In that city there was a widow who kept coming to him and saying, grant me justice against my opponent. For a while he refused, but later he said to himself, this woman won't leave me alone. She is nagging me day and night, night and day. What he really said was, though I have no fear of God and no respect for anyone, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will grant her justice so that she may not wear me out by continually coming. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God grant justice to God's chosen ones who cry day and night? Will God delay long in helping them? I tell you, God will quickly grant justice to them. And yet, when the Son of Man comes, Will he find faith on earth? You've heard the ancient story. The name on my birth certificate is Amy Adair Jacks. My daddy used to say they should have named me Amy Can I Go Jacks. You see, I always wanted to go somewhere with somebody and they always wanted to know the details of all of my going imagine that actually I don't think my father cared very much about the details he was always just inclined with the answer no the problem is he didn't like telling me no and that was convenient because I didn't like hearing no. So even though I knew he was inclined toward no, I didn't stop asking, can I go? Can I go here? Can I go there? Can I go anywhere? Can I go everywhere? Drove him crazy. He found ways to basically say no without coming right out and saying it. But until I heard an out and out no, I worked that man. I badgered him, I hounded him until I got an outright answer. Always respectful, never whiny, I could usually wear him down to a yes. Often a reluctant yes, but I didn't care. As long as it wasn't, no, I was good to go. And that, my friends, is called persistence and perseverance. And in God's great sense of humor, I have been allowed a bit of payback called parenthood. 
Today's parable is known as the parable of the persistent widow. But if I got to be the one to name parables, I would call this one the parable of the godly nag. She just wouldn't let it go. We have no idea the circumstances. We have no idea who her opponent is. We have no idea what injustice had been handed to her. We don't even know one side of the story, much less both sides. But we can assume that the widow had drawn the short straw on any occasion. The ancient world was not bent toward justice for the poor. And there was no one poorer than a woman without a man. There was no one more voiceless than a widowed woman. She was bottom rung of any ladder. So it is safe to assume that she lived and breathed injustice at every turn. And while we don't get a very full accounting of this story, from the little bit that we do get, I can tell I love this widowed woman. She was persistent and she persevered. Yes, that's the nice way to put it. The truth is she nagged that judge to death. She wore him down until finally, mainly just to get her to be quiet about it all, he granted her request. He was weary of her presence in his courtroom. He was tired of her story, but she wouldn't let it go. For herself, perhaps for all the widowed women everywhere, she wouldn't let it go. Now this parable is not set up to answer the specific question posed today from Genesis about broken relationships, except that this parable is set up to answer every question that is thrown at us. Please don't be tempted to carry a parable farther than it's supposed to go. It would be way too simple to interpret the parable this way. We are all the persistent widow constantly showing up in God's courtroom. And if you nag God to death, God will eventually answer your prayers. So that the one who prays hard enough, often enough, using just the right words, the one that God hears from the most will be granted the desires of their hearts. God can't be this judge in the story. Because we know from the whole of Scripture that God never gets so tired of us that God would like to never hear from us again. But this parable answers every question by the way that it is set up in verse 1. Jesus told them a parable about their need to pray always and not to lose heart. Pray always, don't lose heart. This parable reminds us of our need to be persistent and to persevere in prayer. This parable reminds us that perhaps we need to never give up 
and never give in, that hope does still indeed exist, how often do we give up, give in, lose hope? How often are we so skeptical or so cynical that we come to believe that change is not possible? Sometimes we are so disappointed for so many times that we come to believe that all is lost. This parable reminds us to keep nagging. Yes, in this story's case, the widow wins. But what if that judge had not given in? From what very little we know of her, I have the feeling that this widowed woman would have kept showing up. I believe that she would have kept pleading her case. I believe that she would have been a godly nag until the day she died. And I want to be more like her when I grow up. Jesus' answer for us today, his wisdom that is guide to our life, is for us to pray always and not to lose heart. It's as simple as that. No promises of outcome. Just simply pray always and don't lose heart. It may be simple but it is oh so difficult. The end of the Jacob and Esau story. While Esau had every right to be angry and in that culture he even had the right to seek revenge, he did not. In the end Esau came back with an offer of reconciliation. Their years of deception and brokenness were ended and mended by grace. Not every story ends this way, but it is the hope of our persistence. Not every story ends this way, and this may be the most important thing I say today, but every story holds the possibility to. Every relationship, every situation holds the possibility to end in reconciliation. So we keep praying. Dare I say we keep nagging? Nagging God, nagging one another, nagging ourselves? I have three quick stories from this week. This week I got a phone call about a cousin. I've lost hope in his ability to pull it together. I lost that hope a long time ago. The phone call said, well maybe he's made a step toward progress. I scoffed, I laughed out loud. I said, don't tell me that. I think I said, he'll never change. And I will be doggone if I didn't have to study this text this week. And I realized I had lost my persistent nagging about him. 
It is going to be so much trouble to pick that back up. I just dread it. Story number two. My Wednesday night group that I lead in spiritual practices, we were looking at this text and talking about broken relationships. And someone said, I got a phone call from my estranged, my estranged sister. She said I was wrong. I'm sorry. Let's start over. Nobody wanted to go next. You can't top that. And their first meeting went great. Third story. And then a homeless woman with five children showed up at the door. I said five. And I've been advocating on her behalf for a little over a week now. Friday, I decided not to fax the referral packet that was 12 pages long. How do social workers do that? I decided not to fax it, but to hand deliver it. It would seem nobody's ever done that before. I will be the first phone call they receive Monday morning. Because this ain't going to be easy. And I'm not going to lie, I am not happy she came to my door, because this is going to be work. Oh, me, following Jesus is so aggravating. And then I studied this text all week, and I guess it leaves me wondering, am I, are we being called to become a persistent, nagging widow in our own relationships with one another? and for justice in the whole wide world. I guess each one will have to answer that for himself or herself. And isn't that just like Jesus? Leaving us with a question instead of an answer? May it be so.